So, welcome back to Lessons Learned. I am your host, Laura Winter, sports broadcaster, podcaster and journalist. We are about to delve into the minds of brilliant sports people once again to discover the pinnacle moments that have shaped their professional and personal lives and the lessons they have learned along the way. Perhaps lessons we could all take some comfort and inspiration from too. Lessons Learned is now out weekly, dropping every Monday, so make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like, leave a review as well. I am about to speak to former Scotland rugby captain John Barkley. The flanker was capped 76 times for his country and played in three World Cups, before hanging up his boots to join me pitchside as commentator and pundit. He has an alarmingly dry sense of humour, so I'm very much looking forward to seeing where our chat might go. We are recording at the start of 2021, so unfortunately, like last year, due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, John and I spoke virtually, but we've smoothed the audio out as much as possible for you. Enjoy. A very warm welcome to my guest this episode, Mr. John Barkley. John is a Scotland international rugby player turned commentator, pundit and professional whiskey drinker. He won the Calcutta Cup in 2018, beating England in a cup tie for the first time in a decade. John also won the Guinness Pro 14 title with Scarlet in 2017 and played for both Glasgow Warriors and Edinburgh Rugby during an illustrious career of almost 300 professional appearances. He is more commonly known in rugby circles as the Negatron. And here he is. John, hello. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for that lovely introduction, especially the end. I think you've been speaking to Hugo Monia a bit too much. I have been listening to the Rugby Union podcast in which you are very often introduced as a Negatron. Could you just yeah. explain why you've got that unfortunate nickname? Um, I prefer to think of myself as a realist rather than a pessimist but there's a apparently quite a fine line i think in my early career i kind of moaned about most things um and that's probably why i think that's my sense of humor is uh, to be quite self-deprecating and to kind of have a bit of a moan about things but I, as you know laura i'm uh, a very positive person you are and actually in the introduction um to the podcast today i did describe you as alarmingly dry you have a very <laughs> dry sense of humor <laughs> yeah I, i'd agree with that yeah. And uh, where are you in the world right now and how are you? Because it's a funny time of year, isn't it? Uh, I'm in Edinburgh uh, and it is lovely. It's 16 degrees, so it's ice cream weather, sunbathing weather. Tops off. <laughs> Tops, yeah, maybe. Maybe later. Um, okay, so Edinburgh, lovely. Beautiful spring day in Edinburgh. Uh, how are you doing though? You've been working Six Nations, obviously. And actually, at the time we're recording right now, Scotland are yet to play Italy and the rearranged fixture against France as well. Yes. Uh, yeah, life's pretty good. I think any kind of busyness at the moment's kind of nice after a year of not so much busyness. So as you know, it's been a pretty tricky year. But yeah, I think I've got a kind of nine to five job. But this kind of stuff I do with you know the BBC or you know basically commenting on rugby, talking about rugby is kind of how I've stayed involved in the game. It's kind of what I enjoy doing right now. Yeah, for sure. And just talk to us briefly about your nine to five, because I described you as a professional whiskey drinker. I'm not sure that's wholly accurate, but it does involve whiskey. It does. It does involve whiskey. It does involve drinking whiskey. Uh, yeah, I work for the Dalmore with their private client team. So effectively trying to get people to purchase very, very old, very expensive whiskey. So you've uh, got to walk the walk and talk the talk. You need to know what you're selling. So obviously exactly. You've got to know your product. Job. You've got to know your product. So I take that part of my job very seriously. 
Very good indeed. And briefly, just on Scotland's Six Nations, it began so brightly, didn't it, with that win against England um, at Twickenham, which was an extraordinary match. And then it's kind of petered out a little bit. Yeah, totally. Uh, I, yeah, I, I did the, done the games other than the England game and I was kind of amongst the, the fans now that, and I watched that game and was blown away and it kind of, with three home games after, this is the year we have three home games, two away. Um, this kind of the, a sense that this could be a bit a big year for Scotland to win the big one against England first and the manner which they did it and then to yeah to lose the next two has been pretty pretty tough as a Scottish supporter it's, it's weird actually I felt like when I stopped playing I wouldn't feel I don't know that same emotional connection to the team I, I, I was like after the Wales game I was just gutted and it's kind of like I'm still playing and now I kind of know how fans feel I never really got that as a player why fans were so so attached to the team I kind of, you, you know people are passionate about it, but you don't fully get it until you are a fan again. And yeah, I've been totally sort of deflated and elated at the England game, but then deflated more to in the last couple of weeks. So you've worked the two home games then and they've lost yeah. them both. Common Speaking denominator. Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got Italy this week. So if we do lose to them and I'm there, then I'm not going back. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think the Scotland team would be very grateful for that. Yeah, um, let's get cracking then with your five life moments, um, which are a lovely blend actually of personal and professional and kind of the, the twists and turns in life as well. So we'll kick things off. Your first point is going to boarding school. Yeah. So I was looking back and trying to think of kind of less, I don't know, less stereotypical ones. There's a lot of obvious ones in there, which I could have put in. But um, first of all, I loved boarding school. I, I, I kind of grew up in the Far East and uh, by the time I was eight, I'd been at, lived in six different countries, which sounds glamorous, but as an eight-year-old, you're like, any chance of, you know, having some mates, mum, dad, please. So you're kind of... So what, what, what were your parents doing, which meant that you were travelling around the world like that? I mean, drinking a lot, mainly. <laughs> no, my yeah, runs in the family. Now, my dad worked for BP, so in the oil business, and my mum's teacher, so they, they kind of travelled around that kind of expat life, which was brilliant, but it got to a point when my, my brother was 11, they said, look, we're going to send him to boarding school. Um, and I said, well, I'm going to go as well. And I was only eight. So I've got a son now who's almost eight. And I look at him now and I think, my God, I can't imagine sending you to boarding school. Um, and I went to boarding school as well. It's quite important to differentiate. I went to boarding school when it was kind of, I think it was the last era of traditional boarding school, kind of Hogwarts style with less magic, you know, proper go there, you know, big dormitories, the house, like 60, 60, 70 pupils in a boarding house. Um, yeah, no telephone, one house telephone for 60 people. So, you know, way outside the phone box on a Sunday and you miss them, get proper homesick. And just the whole experience, you know, the, the things I did at boarding school, like school was a huge part of my life. The best, I, I, some people don't enjoy school. I love school, you know, even despite the fact of being homesick and, you know, elements of bullying, probably when I, when I was first there, because it was that old school in terms of we had eight-year-olds living in the boarding house with 18-year-olds and the monas, our house parents, very infrequently came in to see how things were going. So it was, you can imagine it was kind of Lord of the Flies-esque at times. So, um, but yeah, I, I just, I loved it. I absolutely loved boarding school. Um, made my best friends there. And just the school in general, I think I loved everything about school. And I think kind of being at school and learning the kind of values and, the way I was brought up there was kind of, I think, put, instilled in me a lot of the values I have now. So it was quite hard. You know, like I said, I can't really imagine sending my kids now. And I don't think it, it would be the same experience, but you, you basically grew up with 60 guys 
given a lot of freedom now, which I don't think they would have to kind of just go out. And as long as you're back in the boarding house by 10 in the evenings, like as a, as an eight year old, that's, that's a lot of fun. As a teenager, that's even more fun. Uh, and it was just kind of sport. I saw I did loads of sport, got into mischief as well, but there was a lot of sport. There's always someone to, to go and play rugby with, always someone to go and do something with. And I love that. So you basically went from kind of living life almost on the road from country to country to a period of stability where you were surrounded by like 60 mates basically all the time. Yeah, pretty much. And like there was, it was just a hectic life. Like I don't, I don't, I don't know where I would end up if I, if I'd stayed after we, we were in Malaysia, like we, my parents were then onto, they did Hong Kong, Singapore, Shanghai, Philippines, and yeah, the international school are good, but we had family over here, so it was a way to kind of stay connected. But yeah, I yeah, I think we went to a, a period of, and I still have friends from boarding school. Um, so yeah, look, I, I never left. I actually dipped back in. My parents came back, and I dipped back out of boarding school for a couple of years, and then they sent me back in for my sixth year, which seemed a bit cruel. But I got given a car, and I got to, I got to leave a weekend. So as a 17, 18 year old boy with a car and a house to go and stay at the weekends, you can kind of fill in the blanks. Yeah, I can imagine that was um, formative years, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine life without boarding school? Can you imagine sort of, um, I guess it's really shaped who you are today. Uh, and school does that, doesn't it? It, it really shapes us. And like I said, it's, it's those formative years that make us who we are today. Can you imagine life without it, where you'd be, what you, who you'd be? I can't imagine I would be doing, I would have played rugby had I not left um, the Far East. Wow. Okay. I don't. I definitely wouldn't have had a professional rugby career playing for Scotland if I just. If I, I think the longer I'd stayed over in Asia, uh, there is you know there's a bit of rugby and stuff, but something it would have been something else, and probably not professionally something else would have you know taken my fancy. But um, yeah, so in terms of that, you look at terms of the, like the path your, your your life takes. I think it would have at that stage. It's obviously clearly went in a certain direction to open up that opportunity. So. Yeah, I think my life would be substantially different, and maybe not, maybe not if it, not just boarding school, but just if it might, if we'd all been back in the family, it would have been the same. I don't think it was all about boarding school. I think it was more just coming home and, and kind of getting involved in a kind of UK style of schooling. Maybe that's mad, isn't it? That actually it wouldn't have just sort of changed who you are, but changed your entire life path and and the career that you went on to do, which moves us on to our second moment, which is. And this is something I didn't know about you. Um, and as you said, you're not just a hat rat. Clearly, there's some brains in there um, because it was changing your mind at the very last minute not to study medicine, but to give rugby a go. And I'm guessing professional rugby a go. Yeah, so I was uh, six year and I don't know if you used to this at school, you do like a, like a careers evening kind of thing and you go and speak to different. And I'd, I'd actually, I was actually going to uni to study law. And then I went, I went and sat in law and I was like, this is pretty boring. Um, I suppose my uncle, who's a lawyer, and he said, don't be a lawyer. And I said, like, that would have been useful six months ago when I applied to do law. And then, so I changed to, I changed to do medicine. And then just like, I think I just kind of sat there. I was like, I don't actually know what I want to do anymore. Um, and you've got to think, it's not really like what it was then. This was kind of, the, rugby was only seven years professional. And they kind of just were going to try out this apprentice style thing that, you know, footballs that you come through to your apprenticeship. And I was the first batch of apprentices that Scotland ever did. Um, and looking back, it was probably an excuse to pay us six grand and make us be full-time professionals. So I earned 500 quid a month and I, that was my full-time job. And in, in my first pay, my first month, I went and bought a 1,000 pound telly. 
So that tells you a little bit about how I probably wasn't ready to to be living on my own and did on sound to look after myself. So, um, but yeah, that that was my my career path chosen. And then my original thought was I'll go and play rugby for a year or two, see where it goes. Uh, I didn't. That I remember, I remember my brother saying, "You don't really think you're going to play for Scotland, do you?" Uh, and I didn't know. I had no idea. And then even after a year, I was like, I'm not really enjoying this. I might actually go back to uni. All my mates were at uni partying, living their best life. And I kind of felt like I was missing out. And it's funny, whenever I see them now, they always say, like, do you remember when you thought about quitting? Again, imagine how different your life would be now. Yeah, for sure. I was going to ask, were you under pressure from family or friends who thought at the moment where you said, I'm not going to study medicine, which is obviously this career path that's sort of laid out in front of you. And at the end, you will become a doctor. It's not like doing what I did at university where I did English and you come out and go, okay, I don't know what on earth I'm going to be. Um, for you, there was a definite path and you walked away from that. Was there pressure from your friends and family to say, hang on a minute, what are you doing? Only a very small percentage of people become professional athletes, professional rugby players. Are you sure you're doing the right thing? There was definitely a sense of that. Like, uh, my parents never explicitly said, oh, we'd, we'd prefer you didn't do this. Um, I think they kind of seen they probably had more belief in me than I had in myself to be a professional rugby player. So that was quite nice. But there was always, I I can add that sense. I was like, yeah, this is totally unstable. You know, you know, your brother says to you, you know, look, you really think you're going to play for Scotland. If you don't, then what's, what's kind of the point. And, and it was really exciting. I remember thinking, I'm a professional rugby player. And it was just, it was just bizarre. And I I had that kind of lingering feeling of I'm turning my back on this great career. But I guess in, when you're young, you're a bit naive and you think, I'll just go back. I'll go back whenever. I'll go back and just study and it will happen. And I actually tried to go and study part-time like a biomedical sciences degree. And I went to one lecture and lost my free place at university after one lecture. Uh, and like I went and they, I was like, "Any, do you know, can you help me out here? Because I'm a professional rugby player. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> don't you know and who like, I am? Yeah, yeah. Any chance of a bit of kind of leeway on, you know, and there was just none. There was zero help. And I just thought, well, there's absolutely no way I can do both. So I, I knocked that on the head and then <laughs> just played rugby for 16 years. That's crazy, isn't it? How much of a fork in the road that was for you. Um, so at school then, what were you? What were your strong subjects? I'm guessing science, sciences, biology, chemistry, maths. Science and economics. I liked economics. That's uh-huh. what we were doing. Um, yeah, I did. I did. I was. I did quite well at school. I think I. Yeah, I, did, I, I worked quite hard. Hard enough. Um, but yeah, I think I. My mum. My mum was a teacher growing up, so she can. Uh, and from an early age taught me how to how to study and how to work hard but you think about boarding school as well going back to boarding school we had to sit for an hour and a half in silence every night and do homework if in silence total silence if, if i can't you, imagine if, you uh, well yeah i can't either i can't imagine mike is now sitting quite five minutes and i think if you can't get good grades and you're sitting down for an hour and a half every night uh what are you doing with an hour and a half every night <laughs> yeah that's a so, very, very good point. Um, yeah. Any lingering regrets? Any sort of wishes now to um, study again or to make that move back into medicine? Are you more than happy talking about rugby and drinking whiskey? I'm definitely happy doing that. I, I think with anything, the older you get, the more squeamish you get and uh, you kind of realise everything's kind of scary in life and you don't want to do that stuff. So 
uh, no regrets. Um, it would have been a, it would have been a really cool life to to do. I think, and I've got friends that are doctors. And I just got utter admiration for what they do because they go through the mill, you know, physically and emotionally. So no, no, no regrets. Um, I went on to I did study when I was at, when I played rugby. I did a uh, I did a degree in my own house for six years in land management surveying, which is super boring and totally useless doing what I'm doing now. But uh, it was a kind of, once I started, I thought I'll get a degree. So no, no, no real regrets. Uh, maybe regrets that I missed out on Freshers Week. Uh, that was kind of what I felt like I was missing out. And that's what your priorities are when you're 18, you're missing out on Freshers and partying and all that kind of stuff. I'd imagine that some of the post-match parties you guys have had over the years at World Cups and on tours more than lived up to Freshers Week. Yeah, I'd say so. But I, I'm, there was a sense that I was missing out on like all my friends' 21st. And and I definitely kind of grew away from my some of my school friends because they were just in this totally different world. And my schedule was kind of totally dictated to me by rugby, which basically meant I had no weekends free unless I was injured. And if you're injured, you can do anything. So, um, yeah, look, we had I had a lot of fun along the way. Uh, managed to have a few good nights out along the way. But, um, yeah, my friends always say, look, if we could swap our lives for yours, we would do it in a heartbeat. And that's always a nice reminder that you're lucky to do what you do. And that you made the right choice as well. Yeah, definitely. I guess. Uh, we'll move on then to your third moment in life, which is moving to Wales. And that was, uh, I love that this is like, a big moment for you having to move to Wales. Yeah. Um, that was playing for Scarlets, um, and you played there for five years, didn't you? Yeah. Um, and now I've retired. I look back, and I think if I hadn't moved to Wales and I'd retired, I would have been disappointed with my lot. And I'm not trying to be modest. I just think um, I didn't win anything in Glasgow. Played in some semi-finals in league. Um, you know, did did some stuff for Scotland, but never won anything with Scotland. And actually, I went to Scarlets and, and managed to win a league and play in the final next year and European semi-finals. And it was hands down the most enjoyable five years of my career. Like nothing comes close. And I think without it, the memories I made and the people I played with and the way the rugby we played and uh, it was we were I was kind of right place, right time, but definitely in like a culture and an environment where you you played hard, but you also partied hard and you really had a lot of fun at the site and there was kind of no, as long as you played well and you came out and had the right kind of behaviors, you kind of were encouraged to enjoy yourself and enjoy each other's company. And um, yeah, I, I loved it and, it, you know, totally regretted leaving when I left. Oh, really? So when you left, because oh, yeah. you signed another two-year deal with Edinburgh, didn't you? And that was a big regret for you. Oh, yeah. You know, at the time I was moving back to, I was Scotland captain, I was moving back home to, you know, I was 31, yeah, 31, so to be kind of managed before the World Cup and to help Edinburgh, who were kind of going through a bit of a transition and then uh, ruptured my Achilles and then just kind of never worked out Edinburgh, kind of never really got picked and kind of just petered out. So, and I just think I was in a place in Scarlet's where I was well-respected. I kind of earned, had a lot of credit in the bank there, um, really well set up. And, I, and I, my career path would have been totally different if I'd, retired down there I would have 100% been a coach but I came back and uh, didn't enjoy myself and just didn't want to didn't want to really stay involved in the game in that capacity so um, again you talk about kind of forks in the road and making decisions that was you know so it's probably yeah, when I sent you that saying I'm moving to Wales sounds like a huge move you know moving down the road to Wales but it was more the kind of 
the impact it had on my rugby career and and it, and ultimately my kind of where my life's gone now. That's fascinating, isn't it? That actually it would have changed the whole path you're on right now as well if you had stayed. When you initially first moved, did you find it hard to adjust? I'm, I don't know why we're talking as though Wales is this foreign it kind of land. is. It's it <laughs> definitely the climate of kind of culture and society. <laughs> and I say I, that with the fondest memories. Yeah. I mean, it's about an hour down the road from me here. So it's not too far across the border. Um, but for you, did you find it hard to adjust to a new way of life? And a, like you said, a new culture, a new club, new players, perhaps a new way of playing, a new style? Uh, I was surprised when I went down. I was surprised how different it was. Uh, and we were, it was a bit of a shambles when I joined there. Like, kind of, I guess the end of one generation, the kind of transitional period. So I was kind of lucky to be in that period where it changed over. And just, again, right place, right time with guys that who came through the academy all at the same time, Jonathan Davis, Reese Priestland, Liam Williams, Gareth. These guys all went on to be British Lions that year. Ken Owens, um, the list kind of goes on. So I was definitely right place, right time. But yeah, it was just, it was a bit of an adjustment to move down. Wales, is, especially Southwest Wales, is very quiet. Um, as in, it's not, it's not, it's not a big city. It's not Edinburgh. It's not Glasgow. So I'd gone from Glasgow to, you know, five minutes from all the pubs and clubs in Glasgow to Southwest Wales. And it was very different. They enjoyed themselves very much so, but in a different kind of, in a different way. And it was kind of a throwback to that. So yeah, it, it was very different. And especially the perception of rugby down there and um, kind of being somewhere, being in Glasgow, being a rugby player where there's Celtic and Rangers and you kind of just crack on with life. In Wales, everyone knew everything about rugby as like national hobby, national sport. Everyone wants to speak at rugby. So that took a bit of adjusting, but something I quite liked. Okay. And um, you've mentioned a few of the highlights and a few of the high points at being at Scarlet's, obviously winning the league, um, winning the title, appearing in the final as well. What were other highlights within that time? And also the lows as well. Down at Scarlet's, you mean? Yes, correct. Um, what were the other highlights? Uh, it was probably more just the progression we were in, like the... Yeah, captain the side, but the kind of progression from kind of mid-table, mid-to-bottom table to a definite sense of trans, you know, the transition that the team went through. Um, it'd be hard to pick out individual highlights. I think probably more the socials, the sociable aspect of it. It was the best group of guys I ever played with, you know, sociably. Um, just, yeah, so I don't, I don't even know where I'd start, to be honest. Um, low lights. Yeah, I guess look, that would be the way that, you know, leaving and that the style in which I left in terms of rupturing my Achilles in my last game um, and not really, not it sounds a bit cheesy again to say goodbye, but I literally ruptured my Achilles on the Friday and I just left on the Monday after five years. And that was, that was, and that's kind of professional sport. You're literally there for five years and then you're gone. Yeah, there was no last hurrah on the pitch, no way to say goodbye and thank you to the fans. No, there was a wee, there was actually a wee, but I suppose we knew our last home game, so... You know, I get goosebumps talking about it. You know, they again we went from like half full stadiums there to you know playing in front of eighteen thousand. You know, for our big games and the last game that I got taken off and got a nice reception and got to go off. So I kind of did get to do it. It was more just leaving the club, um, and I was really emotional. Even I remember I, I was staying with Gareth Davis, the Welsh from half the time, and uh, so I ruptured my Achilles and had to get up in the morning to go for surgery in London. And I remember kind of saying bye to him, like, and I remember being really, and without showing, because this guy's a really show emotion, and he kind of just kind of get on. I remember being in the car, being like, take a deep breath here, and kind of driving out of Wales. I was going to London to get surgery, and I was like, this is, it just felt like a kind of 
big kind of moment in my life and a big part of my life I was kind of moving away from. Were you sitting there thinking, what, where's my face? Where? It's like tears. Yeah. Like, I shouldn't be crying. What are these things? <laughs> it's good though to show emotion. It actually, it shows, I think that's must be incredibly lovely for fans to hear just how much Scarlet's and that time at the club meant to you. Yeah. And I think, um, again, it's hard to kind of quantify. I did like a, my last week at Scarlet's, they did like a, again, I could get goosebumps now. They did like a thing on, BBC Wales they kind of tricked me into going to this studio to say they were doing something for the final and I went and they played like messages to me from all of the fans and from people in the stadium and staff coaches players all that sort of stuff and I remember I was like and you kind of live in a bit of a micro bubble you don't really think you're making much of a difference when you're playing you don't I never took why I did that seriously which sounds wrong but I kind of just thought we're playing rugby it's not that serious at the end of the day um, I definitely didn't, didn't realise the kind of impact I'd had on the team until I left uh, and that was quite nice when I left for people to say those things and kind of longer it goes on now people kind of mess me so you know then you know what you did there was quite special because at the time you just you're in it and you don't really realize until you until you move away from it yeah absolutely you weren't saving lives anyway well exactly <laughs> you not do. yeah exactly <laughs> I was uh it was a game of rugby but I think especially there a game of rugby is very important especially in southwest Wales where there's it's not particularly affluent place uh, and rugby is without doubt the heartbeat of the community. I think that's something the last year taught us all is that when sports stopped for kind of three months at the start of the pandemic, we realised how important it is in our lives and how much it forms, like you said, a heartbeat and something for us to connect over and to talk about and to socialise with and sports just this real mainstay in all of our lives that when it disappears, you suddenly realise how important it actually is. I think there's a reason it's still being played, isn't it? During the pandemic, they realised it's pretty profound the impact it has on people's lives. It gives people inspiration. It gives people hope. It makes people happy. It makes people sad. Um, it's an emotional sort of roller coaster. But yeah, I mean, fully again, I didn't really realise the impact sport has until I stopped playing. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. We'll move on to your fourth moment, which is more of a personal one, uh, and that's having kids. I'm kind of linked to what we just spoke about there, kind of having, I took, I spent nine years and realized, and I kind of thought, yeah, rugby was my life and without realizing it was probably my identity. And then you have kids and you realize, oh, this is actually just a sport. Um, and it coincided probably, yeah, with me. Yeah, it did. It perfectly coincided with me not getting picked for Scotland for three years when I had kids and uh, my first child, Finn. And um, I think I, I just realized, I didn't, people said, people, think I'm maybe being blasé but I didn't really once I got over the initial disappointment of not getting picked for Scotland and kind of I knew it wasn't for rugby reasons I, I was like well actually I'm all right here you know I'm playing for a team I love being out and I've got a family now and, and I, I just think it's just a, and most people have kids talk about it. it's a real leveler in terms of your your attitude to sport and usually people get better I think when you've got something else other than just pure focus on rugby or whatever your sport is I think when there's something else to distract you I think for me, certainly, I, I think I played my best career, my best rugby in my career. It's perspective, isn't it? You suddenly, it isn't just about you anymore. And it mm. isn't just about rugby. And rugby isn't life and death. There are yeah. tiny people who are relying on you. Yeah, and like if you had a bad game and you'd be like, oh, a bad game, you come home, kids don't care. They're like, so what? You know, let's, let's go and play something. Let's go watch Peppa Pig. And they just don't care. And kids are just full on. They don't. They don't like give you time to think about that either. So, uh, yeah, they they drive you mad, but it's also it's also a lot of fun. So, yeah, I just look at like kind of defining kind of moments and the the way they link to my my life and and rugby and what and the difference they made. And I think for me, 
yeah, I could have done with a few more hours of sleep going into games. But I think I was like always like quite like precious about my sleep and had to be all everything had to be lined up and to, for me to play well, I had to be organized. And then I kind of had kids, and I was like, I remember driving to a game of Scarlet's and Finn was about six and he was like screaming and we were playing like I think we were playing like the wheels on the bus or something in the car and then I had to go play a game. So that they talk about like preparation for games. And I got to the point where I was like, as long as I rock up with I've had a couple of glasses of water and some food and a pair of boots, then oh, I should be all right. And the Welsh guys, that's was interesting. In Wales, well, their, their approach was very relaxed. I went from changing rooms in Scotland with very serious games and no laughing to these guys are pissing around, you know, five minutes for kickoff, you know, on the pitch, pissing around, having an absolute riot. And it really changed my perspective of how to look at, at rugby. I suppose having kids as well takes that level of control that you have over your life and your sleep and what you eat and when you eat and all of that, that all goes because you suddenly have to, as I said, be accountable to, to tiny demanding people. So was, was that quite a shift for you to suddenly go, right, I can't get eight hours sleep tonight, but that's going to have to be okay. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And I think like a start is a kind of an uphill battle. You try and fight against it. And you're like, and now you're like, you're, that's why, by the end of my career, so I'll have a couple of hours sleep and play. Or again, like, like I said, as long as I had some food and I, you know, I had a couple of glasses of water and a coffee, by and all, but you know, pretty much I, I was right to go. And I think there's definitely something in that in terms of professional sport. There's definitely like, without doubt, you know, nutrition and sleep and there's science there that backs that up. But I also think there's uh, so much that can be said for just your mindset and how you approach things. And you can kind of make excuses for yourself and, uh, make a rod for your own back psychologically so I think I kind of became a bit more mentally resilient if that's the right phrase just to kind of crack on with it uh and like, I've got friends that are in the army you, know, you speak to guys in the army I've got guys friends of mine that are in the SAS and they'll be like oh we didn't we didn't drink water for a day and we were you know trying to people were trying to kill us with guns uh, and I'm like yeah but I actually need 10 hours sleep to chase a rugby ball around for 80 minutes and you're like really do I really, is that really necessary? <laughs> Somewhere in the middle is probably the right place to be, I think. Once again, I think the word perspective is yeah. useful there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, can you recall, again, we're talking about emotions. Um, can you recall the emotions when you first became a father? Yeah, uh, yeah, I cried a lot. And I went home and, and I uh, could stay in hospital overnight and I went home and I just remember thinking, I actually remember feeling like a, a fraud. That was my first emotion. Like imposter syndrome, I was like, but I was like, am I actually a dad? This is really weird. And it, it took for a long time, like, and I kind of thought people were always looking at me thinking, is he, is he really dad? Is, does he know what he's doing? It was a really weird sensation. Um, and now, yeah, you can't imagine it. It's really hard to imagine a life like what you did before because they just take up all your time. <laughs> and you've got three kids, right? Yeah, three boys, yeah. Three boys. And I've seen videos on your Instagram of you guys playing around the house. It looks like a total riot, complete chaos. <laughs> it is most of the time, yeah. It's very chaotic in our house, uh, which I quite like. It's quite full on, but I was sat in, like I was sat in this chair in a meeting with work the other day and I heard like a scream and my eldest had fallen from a wall and basically turned his leg into a kebab on a stick. And then I was like, I think I think I'm gonna have to go and leave this meeting, gents. And uh, then you end up in A and E and oh, getting right. surgically cleaned out and yeah, oh, yeah. So that's kind of the life is our life is super busy, super frantic, um, but it's a lot of fun. It's you know, kids give you so much back. 
And how have you found coronavirus and obviously the pressures of homeschooling? Um, I mean, if you're to choose a worse time to retire from the sport and try and find a proper career, you'd struggle to find a worse one. Maybe go back to, I don't know if it was rugby played during the Spanish flu, but I doubt <laughs> it. I think, like, I was so stressed, so uncertain, so unsettled about what I was going to do. I had no idea. And I had a very clear idea before COVID. I had a plan and that was pulled out from under my feet. So I went from, you know, on the face of it, people say, well, what did you have to be worried about? You know, you had a good career. You would have made, you know, a good, a good living. Um, but all my, I bought a house in Edinburgh and all my money was in my house, almost all of it. And I was like, how am I, am I going to sell my house? Am I moving my kids? It's not just me. I was like, am I moving all my kids? Like it would have been simple if it was just me. I'm moving on my kids. Like, what am I doing? And I just had no idea. And I had no idea when it was going to end. That was the scary thing. I had no idea what I was going to do. And I'm someone that needs to have a, a purpose and some sort of some sort of focus to do at the end of each week, in which I'd had through rugby. So I, I found it really hard. Um, and then got my job, thankfully, in probably August. I, I kind of did five months, four or five months of real, you know, what the hell can I lying in bed in the, in the evenings and just staring at the ceiling thinking, what the hell am I going to do? So, uh, I, I, yeah, I found it, it was a pretty pretty tricky time. But again, it's, you talk about perspective comes up, you know, there was people in far worse positions than me. And I do think um, these things have a way of writing themselves. So, yeah, it was pretty pretty tricky old spell. But um, look at us now. I know. You can almost have a beer outside in 10 degrees. I thought it was 16 degrees in Edinburgh. It is actually quite balmy today. It is quite nice today. It's, so it's 10 degrees balmy in Scotland? Yeah, it depends if there's wind or not. So yeah. Like, uh, 10 degrees is about 16 in, in the garden if you can find a, a sort of sheltered area. Sun trap. Yeah. I think a lot of people will be able to relate to what you just said about COVID. That's certainly what happened to me as well. I was just suddenly thrust into this absolute world of uncertainty and I'm someone who plans to the nth degree and to the last minute of every day and I know exactly what I'm doing when I'm doing it and suddenly Covid took all of that away from us and that was very difficult to adjust to. Yeah well you were kind of essentially I guess self-employed and freelance and a lot of the guys in the media that we work with you see how, like how hard it was for them I didn't have a full appreciation of that until I was kind of in the same situation I was I was just unemployed I wasn't even self-employed I was just kind of looking desperately for a job anywhere. So it's interesting to see how people kind of found their way through it. And it's kind of a life lesson. I think it's a bit, it's a bit cheesy, a bit of a life lesson to all these stresses you kind of find, as long as you're doing anything, you kind of find, you kind of navigate your way out of them as best you can. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. We'll move on to your fifth moment, which is one that we did touch upon um, at Scarlet's and how you ended um, your tenure at Scarlet's, and that is rupturing your Achilles. But let's move on to talk about what happened, I guess, after that match with Scarlet's, where you did get the injury and then get surgery pretty quick afterwards. Yes, yeah, so I, I played in a semi-final on the Friday against my old team, and I ruptured it. I knew straight, pretty much straight away that I'd ruptured it, and I went inside. Um, and then I kind of knew I'd ruptured my Achilles. My wife came down, she's a physio, and she kind of looked at it and said, look, that's fully ruptured and I went and saw the guys after the game I remember I mean that's I, I don't have ever cried in front of any teammates ever in my whole career just because it's not the environment for it and I remember like and I remember I was all right until I saw it and other players were kind of crying with me and I was like shit this is really this is pretty bad and I think I think the fact that I was leaving and it was kind of a cruel way to end um 
and it just was crap. I was just gutted. Um, and I lay in bed that night in Glasgow. Yeah, I was just, and I actually thought, I kind of thought at that point my career was over. You know, I was 31, had a long history of chronic uh, tendonitis in my Achilles, and it ruptured and it basically exploded when it ruptured. So, it was pretty, it was pretty savage. And then, yeah, three days later, you leave, you get your, you get your surgery and you drive home and then you get, I got a blood clot, uh, two blood clots from the surgery. Um, so you'd get past the pain, all that sort of stuff. And then it just, it just took forever to come back. They, I had a kind of six month timeline and uh, I couldn't even walk after six months. And then I just kind of had the feeling that I wasn't gonna, I wasn't part of the team's plan anymore straight away. Let's put it that way there were some conversations had and I kind of knew this plan that I'd come back was now falling apart before me. So, uh, I managed to get fit. Um, you know, go back, uh, I think it was about 11 months, 11 months of rehab, which was pretty torturous, pretty mundane, managed to get back, played for Edinburgh, played I think three or four games, played well, got to the world cup, but it was kind of a real turning point. I just couldn't physically keep up anymore. Like training wise, I felt like in the 11 months I'd been out, I'd just been overtaken, like I just couldn't keep up. And I was always someone that could was kind of very fit, quick enough to get by. And then I just couldn't, I'd be in Scotland preseason and I was really digging in, like digging in hard trying to keep up. Um, and I was kind of one of the senior players. And I guess then, yeah, I went to World Cup, um, didn't matter. Well, that was nothing to do with my kill. I just, didn't, I just didn't play well in the first game and then got dropped and then came back. And I just wasn't part of the plans anymore. And that's kind of the cruel um, nature of professional sport is that you, you think you're part of this plan and there's a lot of nice things said and promises and then you come back and there's an injury and because it's a business, the business moves on and young players come in who are you know, exceptionally good players. But I kind, of, I kind of feel like I have a lot to offer still, but um, I think, again, things work out for a reason. But I definitely, the last couple of years weren't enjoyable from a, you know, playing or the stuff that happened off the pitch either. So that was 2018 when you ruptured your Achilles. We're talking about the 2019 World Cup, which was yeah. super disappointing for Scotland and indeed for yourself, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I battled to get back in and got and got to the squad because I missed the 2015 World Cup when I wasn't getting picked. So I, I kind of, I did two World Cups before that and I was like, oh, you went to three World Cups, that's great. And then I kind of remind them that I, I only ever beat Russia and Romania at World Cups. So it wasn't that it wasn't that amazing. We always went to World Cups and did badly the ones I I don't know if I'm the common denominator. Whenever World Cup I went to, we were crap. So um, yeah, it was disappointing. Like, it was disappointing personally. I, you know, I I played one game and then got dropped, rightly so. Um, the guys were playing better than me, so that that was fine. And then you kind of. I can't remember just being back at like 2011 when New Zealand we got knocked out in the group stage just the first time ever. I remember getting home and I was like, I can't believe we're home already. We just just got there. We prepared for this for six months, and it was exactly the same. It was like deja vu in 2019 just to to go through it and you come back. And, but then you just kind of, yeah, you know, I wish I'd done more. I always look back at my career and you. I think most sports people would do that. They look back and think, God, I could have done a bit more. I could have won a bit more. I think as a Scottish rugby player, that's gonna be the case you know you're up against it a bit and you kind of make the most of it as, as you best you can and we'll talk about retirement then in conjunction with this because retirement for you came kind of toward the end of 2019 uh what year is it uh what year i don't even know what year right now we just turned 2021 we're in 2021 last year yeah, so i got back to the world cup 2019 and then i played in yeah i played a handful of you know i was basically sent out i think this it doesn't, and it's going to sound wrong to it, but it kind of like the second 
the second string team and you know and teams are in and I was like oh cool I'm, I'm not playing again that's good <laughs> I'd end up with like the seconds in like playing Agen away in a challenge cup game and I was like how how is this I was at World Cup a few months ago and then yeah COVID struck and yeah my last game was 10 minutes off the bench against Cardiff and then that was it and then never I never went back into dressing room again which was a bit weird because I always imagined knowing when my last game would be I always imagined that feeling of coming off the pitch and all that sort of stuff and is it important not really um I've said it before, I think there's far um, far better players than me that never got that. So I'm kind of happy. In one way, I'm happy. I wish I'd won more, but I didn't need the big emotional send-off. I was going to ask, are there regrets? Because often you speak to sports people and retiring on your own terms and in your own time. And like you said, in a chosen match where you know as that final whistle goes, that's it. The tears will start then. You didn't get that. Are there other regrets? Does it ever play on your mind? Certainly, when you see other players get that big send off. Yeah, I was. I kind of looked at it and I saw like the year before Rory Best retired, and then he went and played for the Babas in the Millennium Stadium, and I was like, God, that would be fun. That would have been so fun to go and do. So yeah, I kind of tricked myself. I kind of went back and forward, and I actually considered keeping on playing even after deciding I was going to retire. I was like, maybe I should go and play. Maybe I should. This shouldn't be the way that it ends for me. Maybe I should go and do that. But then I looked at my lot and I was like, you know what? I kind of come out of the game pretty unscathed physically, you know, you know, injuries are part and parts of the game, but you know, I'm you know, I'm pretty fit and healthy-ish. So I kind of then just took stock of what I had and I was like, you know, I actually and I kind of looked at last years and I was like, there's no guarantee of moving that I'm gonna enjoy myself. You know, I didn't enjoy the last year, so what I'm gonna go and move everything, and then you're kind of just delaying the inevitable, you're delaying retirement. Um, and in, you know, rugby is not football in terms of salaries or you know, Formula One. You, you you get a job when you stop, unless you're Johnny Wilkinson or you know, a superstar of the game. You're going to work. You're going to find a job to some level or another. So um, yeah, look, I'd be lying if I said it wouldn't have been nice to have that send off. But I I don't necessarily think I would have got that at Edinburgh anyway. I wasn't in the team, and I don't think the coaching setup there would have kind of said, "Oh, what's John's last game?" Was you know, let's, let's, let's start. And then I just think, I actually, that would have been a more depressing way to, to finish. But it was like, all my, sh- I don't even know what my crap is. It's still in the stadium somewhere. All my boots must be lying around somewhere. I never got them all. You just left so, it all there. And- <laughs> yeah, I never, and then I never saw, I've never seen anyone get like, obviously I've seen the players every so often with COVID, but like never saw any of the staff again. Um, and this is, this isn't important, but it kind of shows you about a bit about just have a thick skin because there was never a phone call. How are you getting on, John? What's, I played for 16 years. I played with the SAU for 16 years. And there was never, you know, what are you doing now, John? What, what's the plan? Are you okay? Anything we can do to help? It's just like, thanks a lot. See you later. <laughs> so, right. But I knew that was the business. I knew that was, I knew I'd seen enough of that to know that this is the business we're in and you get much more out of it than they take from you. So that's kind of, you have to look at it that way doesn't necessarily mean it's right and we've seen so many sports people with issues post-retirement where they are kind of just cast out into the real world and it's sink or swim isn't it yeah look I've seen, I've, I've seen first-hand experience of some of my best friends struggled with you know heavily struggled with depression when they stopped they'd lost their identity they'd lost their purpose and there's definitely much more uh, awareness around that and support for players but I think we, we were joking earlier around about the kind of it's a very macho uh, environment and it's going to take a lot to shift that to, to help people so I think yeah like I, if I could bottle the, the feelings that I had in the first lockdown when I was 
stressed and didn't have a job and didn't know what I was doing. And you could just let people have a smell of that. You know, the young players, you that that's kind of what you need to do to young players. Say, look, just be prepared. This comes to this comes to an end. You know, enjoy it as it's the best journey you have, but also just remember this this kind of can stop quite quickly. And I think that's you know, it sounds very serious and old manish to say, but it's it's probably I wish and people did say it to me, but I didn't listen. That's just that's just part of being young, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You never think it will be your turn until it is, until you're there walking away from the game. So you think you'll keep playing forever. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, John, this has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for your time today. I feel like we've ended on a really kind of like negative note. Um, But you're enjoying... (laughs) (laughs) How appropriate. The negatron ends negatively. Exactly. No, it was, it was kind of uplifting. I was going to say uplifting. That was uplifting for me. Was, wow. Okay. That was Thanks. you being positive. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but the punditry, uh, I've worked with you. I have to say you're very good at what you do. So it's clearly has been a natural progression for you going into talking about the game as opposed to playing it. Yeah. And again, like if I hadn't ruptured my Achilles, we'd talk about opportunities and forks in the road. If I hadn't had ruptured my Achilles, I never would have had a long run at it. And as you know, you don't get it the first time. You don't go in there and you're great at this. It takes a lot of time and learning and a lot of mistakes. So yeah, I wrote to my Achilles and spent a year with the BBC and managing to do some commentary. So that's kind of how I see myself staying involved. So, you know, I, in an ideal world, there'll be crowds. I, I, you know, as you know, you get a lot from the crowds, even from a commentary, punditry position. So uh, I really enjoy that side of of, of the game and it gives you an opportunity to talk about the game and in a fun way and you get good good seats and you get snacks so life's pretty good yeah snacks and coffee you have to duck <laughs> flying balls though do you remember yeah. um yeah. ireland scotland autumn nations cup we were walking out the tunnel i was nattering away i think i had two coffees in my hand so i didn't have hands to fend off any flying objects and I'll never forget, we suddenly saw the Irish coaching staff screaming at us like, heads, heads. <laughs> and you, I with your open hands and your rugby prowess, ducked behind me as Johnny Sexton fired a kick at my face. <laughs> of course, that's what you do when someone shouts heads. You just duck. I wasn't ready. <laughs> well, it's every man for himself in those scenarios. Every man or woman for himself. Well, thanks. Luckily, no one got sconed, so that was okay. It was close though, wasn't it? <laughs> It was good fun. That was a good weekend. Yeah, it was indeed. Uh, John, thank you so much. We've ended on a much more positive note. I feel better about that. Um, Looking forward to seeing you on the telly, on the pitch side somewhere sometime soon. Yeah, cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, John. Cheers. See ya. Bye-bye. John never fails to make me laugh. Hopefully you found that interview as entertaining and enlightening as I did. I think we can all relate to much of what the Negatron was saying about perspective, the pandemic and so much more. That's it for today. Don't forget, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a review for the podcast as well. Lessons Learned is out weekly this series, dropping every Monday. So I'll be back next time with another brilliant guest from the world of sport to reflect on the lessons that we learn in every human experience. Until then, take care and see you soon.